less than 34 of your books, and then we're at the end of John chapter 19, actually. John chapter 19. We talked about a lot of the actual physical aspects of things that happen in crucifixion. And we also looked at Sunday morning last week on the trials. So a little bit of the number of several trials that Jesus experienced. I'm going to read the uh, first part. Actually, the, the lesson intro here is pretty good. Some of this should sound a little familiar. Friday night. In this lesson, we learn about two secret disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who risked a lot to show their public support for Christ. In addition to risking their reputation among their fellow Jewish rulers, they risked their wealth and standing in community. Beyond that, Joseph sacrificed his own newly hewn tomb, and he and Nicodemus spent a large sum of their own money to purchase a lot of perfumes and spices to be used in preparing Jesus for burial. Might not seem like much of a sacrifice for two very wealthy and highly respected men, but consider what Jesus' open supporters did. Those closest to him, some of whom even declared earlier that they would die for him, ran away and hid. One of them publicly denied even knowing him, and another even sold him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. By contrast, Nicodemus and Joseph were taking a bold stand for Christ. How about you? How much are you risking or sacrificing for Christ? Most of us probably will not be called upon to die for Christ, perhaps not even to be imprisoned for Christ. In fact, that might actually be the easiest type of sacrifice to make for Christ. The hardest sacrifice is often that of living for him wherever we happen to be right now. Romans 12.1 begs says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. That we should follow the example of the veteran missionary who prayed the following prayer on awaking each morning. Lord, make this bed and altar and make my body a living sacrifice upon it. Help me live this day as a living sacrifice for you. Does that sound too radical for you? According to the second verse of Romans 12, however, it's only what we should be doing every day of our lives. This verse is talking about a form of worship. We need to comprehend that God is so majestic and worthy of honor that we renounce earthly desires for a greater spiritual mission. What about your life? Are you a living sacrifice? Are you living it as a sacrifice? God. 
So we're going to read some verses here. We're going to read the last couple verses of chapter 19. We're going to start verse 38. 19:38, and then we're going to read uh, through chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 31. So I'll start in uh, 1938. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Now the place where he was crucified was the garden, and in the garden was the new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There lay the Jesus, performed because of the Jews' preparation day, the sepulcher was lying dead. The first day of the week cometh Mary the Magdalene early, <clears throat> when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and see of the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she ran up and telling Simon Peter to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he stopped, uh, and he stooping down, and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. And cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lying. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciples, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then with the disciples, then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. And see the two angels in the white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet of the body of Jesus. They say unto the woman, unto her woman. Why weepest thou? She said unto them, Because they have taken my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back, and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou that She supposing him to be a gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her master, She turneth herself, and saith unto him, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren, 
and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut for the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had set, so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, you so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, said unto them, Receive me the Holy Ghost. Those soever said, Ye repent, that they are remitted unto them, and whoever's <coughs> sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my fingers into the prints of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have life through his name. So it's interesting. The lesson ended last week with uh, when we we're talking about the, the, the article and everything from um, the doctors about talking about the physical aspects of crucifixion. The last the last paragraph is really a good kind of segue into today. So we have seen a glimpse of the epitome of evil which man can exhibit toward man and toward God. That is not a free sight and is apt to leave us despondent and depressed. How grateful we can be that we have a sequel. A glimpse of the infinite mercy of God towards man, the miracle of the atonement, and the expectation of Easter morning. So the Bible records the greatest sequel here to the dark scenes of the crucifixion they see. Of course, it begins here with the removal of Christ's body from the tomb. And then it's entombment. So he's thinking about the burial of Christ here. We see two secret disciples. We've, um, of course, already read about those. And who are they? Joseph and Demas. Two men of honor stepped forward after the death of Christ here Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both of whom, members of the same nature, you know, Nicodemus was. Um, so we've already discussed Nicodemus. Just a little bit more on Joseph, what the Bible records about him. Matthew refers to Joseph of Arimathea as a wealthy man. Also a wealthy man. 
Mark calls him an honorable counselor, that is a member of the Sanhedrin. And Luke says that he was a counselor who is good and just. And they also talk about who did not consent unto the deed of them, talking about the rest of them, condemning Christ. What you see here, um, in the last part of chapter 19, they were both disciples, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. Now, as rich men, they had a lot to lose by openly standing for Christ. Money, position, power, prestige, etc. You know, and until Christ's death, neither of them has had the intestinal fortitude, the guts, to stand for Christ here. See, Nicodemus, of course, we've already seen him in John 3, coming to Jesus by night. And you see him actually saying a little something in his defense in chapter 7 a little bit. Um, but you, it's not definitely not an open declaring. Then ask the question, how many of us are like that? Popular wherever we're at, maybe in situations or work, with friends. We got a lot to lose, you know, by standing for Christ, so to speak. Are we willing to renounce the world for him? Evidently, when they saw the Lord's death on the cross, it shamed them out of their cowardice and their selfishness. And they both openly declared that they were his disciples. May the cross have the same effect on us as it did on them. This is interesting here. They not only declared themselves publicly, again, think about this. That would have taken some best to do because we're next, you know? So Jesus' disciples thought, right? His own disciples that are the closest to him, they're the ones hiding, running from him, denying that they even know him. Again, the fact that they're openly declaring themselves here says a lot. But they also sacrificed great wealth in doing it by preparing his body for burial. You know, these special spices that they would use would be wrapped you know, in the linen cloths around the body just to help with the, make it smell good, basically. Um, and you see in John 19.39, it says they used a 100-pound weight of spices. The Roman pound was 12 ounces, so that's 100 Roman pounds, 75 pounds for us. That is it, lot. Weight and money. Think about that. It talks about, I think it even mentions mixture of myrrh and aloes. Myrrh, sound familiar? Anybody? Symbol of things given to him at his birth, wasn't it? Gold, frankincense. Obviously, it was expensive. So, again, just showing you one the the wealth that these guys put out to do this. Not only the reputation, but they even to do this too. But keep a finger here and turn to Psalm 45. Turn to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. 
Psalm 45, verse 7. Actually, let me go back up to verse 6. Psalm 45, verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of... Aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. That song, Out of the Ivory Palaces, scripture that's from. All thy garments smell of myrrh. If you think, actually, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, you don't have to turn there for time's sake. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. So, how, how can Christ's death be sweet to God? Could he enjoy? How can he enjoy? Isn't that? I've seen people talk about, though. Accusatory toward God, you know, how in the world could he, like, sadistic, you know, to, like, pleasure in the death of his son, you know. So how, how can that be? Think about that for a couple more seconds. And turn back to Isaiah 53. Turn to Isaiah 53, verse 10. Someone you want to volunteer to read Isaiah 53, verse 10? Yeah. It have pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So how could the Father take pleasure in it? There's a little phrase in there that if you caught it, Read. He shall see his seed. So you get it, please the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief. What's the next few words? And I shall make his soul an offering for sin. There you go. He could do so because it prepared the way whereby men can be saved. Sweet perfume is a picture of the sweetness of the death of Christ, and that God's wrath was satisfied, his justice appeased, and his love could now call men to salvation because the law was satisfied. And you also think about it, and again, this, this is one of those things that is really hard to wrap your mind around. You can't really fool it, but it wasn't like you have God the Father, and then God the Son is like a separate person, entity kind of thing, you know? Christ is God. It's 
he was a sacrifice, but he willingly did it himself. If you think about that, it's just hard to wrap your mind around, and you can't really explain that. It's hard to explain that to like an unsaved person too, you know. But how much did Christ talk about? I go willingly. No man takes my life from me, but I give it. I give it up. Get it. So Christ's death, as it talks about there, sweet to God, enjoy it. Father, take pleasure in it because that was the way. That was the way salvation happened. You think of the Passover, the lamb, had to be perfect, right? It wasn't just that. And whatever. It wasn't the part that you didn't want. It was the best. <coughs> Again, think of this verses back in Psalms and Ephesians and Isaiah. Wrath was satisfied, justice appeased. You can remember back to it was one of our very, very first lessons that we kind of looked at. Um, it was kind of a an excerpt from a sermon um, that one-eyed Welsh preacher, Christmas Evans, you can remember that, um, talking about the example of mercy and justice and Christ's sacrifice. We don't have time to, to go back and read it right now, but uh, you can recall back to that as a good illustration. So let's move on. So we said the burial, and two secret disciples, 75 pounds of perfume, and a nearby garden. So in Jerusalem, outside the walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem that many people think is the site of Christ's crucifixion is called Gordon's Calvary. There's at least two different places that people point to. Um, Gordon's Calvary is this one here. And just 50 yards away from that is a beautiful garden, and actually there's a tomb that's right there. You know, the Bible says that the tomb was near the cross. If you look at um, back in John 19, verse 42, verse 41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden of the sepulchre where it was never made yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, the sepulchre was nigh at hand. It was close by. So Christ's death you know, occurred between the hours of you know, 3 and 6 p.m. sometime in that time frame. You know, in the Jewish Passover, it was only moments after that. Remember they talked about, they asked Pilate to break the, uh, the legs of those that are on the cross so they could get rid of them literally before the Passover happened. So the body had to be buried before 6. So obviously Joseph's tomb is a perfect site right here. Actually, here by garden, buried near the cross, belonging to Joseph. There's another view of that. There's actually some uh, things in your book that we won't look at for time's sake, but um, other diagrams of like a common first century tomb, um, etc. In your books, your student books, there. The sad days. Can someone go to Matthew 27 and then I need somebody to go to Luke 23? Matthew 27 and then somebody go to Luke 23. So once you get there, John, Luke 20, or uh, sorry, uh, Matthew 27, 61 to 66. And then Andy, you'll be Luke 23, verses 55 and 56. Go ahead and read it with John. 
These give us some indication of what happened after his burial <coughs> and in between his burial and his resurrection, some things that happened. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulchre. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remembered that thou uh, that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. And Luke 23, 55-56. <clears throat> and the woman also which came with him from Galilee followed after, beheld the sepulchre and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ornaments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Again, it's kind of some indication as to things that happened after Christ's burial on Friday, then. And then Friday, kind of, again, the whole Jewish calendar, there's confusion in making sense of what day it was. Some things happened. Consider some things. Think about Peter. Somewhere. In the city, Simon Peter hid himself to mourn his own denial and the Lord's death. Think about his heart would have been broken as he remembered his Lord's last compassionate but hurt look at it. Imagine what he was thinking. <coughs> only I could talk to him now. I only could relive those moments again, how different what a long three days it would have been for Peter. Think about the women. See, the, the two Marys and Salome, would, they followed the men as they carried Jesus' body to the tomb. Jesus and Joseph, obviously, was there at the cross, too. You um, can see that in other Gospels as well. Of course, they would have wept and their hearts broke. See, his body laid dead and cold. Probably lingered a long time, not wanting to leave. At last, probably returned slowly and sadly to prepare spices for his body. They would rest on Saturday and Sabbath, probably thinking and talking about bygone moments with Christ. And then you see that on Sunday morning, they're making their way with the spices to the grave. Soldiers. So the next day, Friday, again, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they remembered that Christ had prophesied his resurrection on the third day. And they went to Pilate, asking him to seal the tomb with the rock and set guards at the entrance to prevent the disciples from stealing his body and pronouncing a false resurrection. Of course, little did they realize they were adding even greater evidence of his eventual resurrection. Because after he arose, they couldn't say that his body had been stolen without making 
their own security measures and their guards look absolutely ridiculous in the process. Think about the other disciples. Obviously, they scattered just like for these three days here. Peter, who knows who he was, John had taken Mary, the Lord's mother, to his house to see him man in that and place on the cross of John. Thomas wasn't even present with him at the first meeting that we read here. You notice he was. All bewildered, confused, sad. They weren't thinking about his resurrection. Isn't it interesting? It was the Pharisees were thinking more about his resurrection than they were. They realized, and they knew what he said. They remembered what he said. But his own disciples did. That's interesting. That works. And it's interesting that they also, people also talk about them. The guards that they got, they weren't actually Roman soldiers. They were just uh, policemen from the Levites. Why they did a pilot to do it then? And then, of course, there's other in uh, in Matthew's gospel, which we won't look at for time's sake. You know, when they talk about when they come running back to him, they bribe them, tell them that if it if it comes to the governor's ears, we'll we'll protect you. If they weren't actual anyway, what about the Jews? What about the regular Jewish populace here? Jewish population ate the Passover meal on Thursday night, Friday for the Jews. Went on their way as if nothing happened. Just another crucifixion. Just another false messiah. You know? Same people five, six days earlier. Hosanna, blessed is the king cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the throne of our father David. Another crucifixion, another day. But then that happened. The third day. Put a finger here and then turn to Matthew 28, and then we also need someone to go to Luke 24. Actually, we'll just go, well, I'll return there. So turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And then turn to Luke 24 while you're at it, too. Matthew 28. So the angel's announcement here. Matthew 28. Verse 2 and 4. Verse 2. Before. Actually, it's in verse 1. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, for the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Now, according to this passage, when an earthquake occurred sometime Saturday, sometime Saturday night, the angel would roll away the stone from the mouth as the guards obviously, for lack of a better term, scared out of the mind, as you can imagine here. Now, just as the sun rays, sun's rays are peeping over the horizon, sun morning, see the women are approaching the tomb here with their spices. 
But as they near the tomb, it says they're amazed to see, and of course the stone's gone, or rolled away, to see a young man sitting by the empty grave clothes. And he told them to behold, or look, where Jesus had lain. And then he said in verse 6, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. But look, he's not here. Think about that. It's probably some of the most glorious words in all of Scripture. He is not here. Those four words. Or he is risen as eight words. And it's interesting, though, that it seems the women didn't tell the disciples the same story that the angel told them to tell. Because if you look in John, uh, back in John 20, verse 2, says, talking about Mary Magdalene, it says, Then she runneth to come to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid it. They state that they, as some unspecified, unnamed people, had taken the Lord somewhere else. In Luke 24, you had your finger there, Luke 24, 9 to 11, it says, And returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary's mother of James and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Again, see the disciples, the disciples passed the news off as idle tales, and they believed them not. But at least two of them, Peter and John, were concerned enough to go look, to go to the tomb here. Because again, you notice that we won't read the verses, but again, verses 3 to 10, you see them go. Obviously, now, what in the world are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to believe? But if you look at verse 8, talking about John, then went also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. And for the first time, John began to start to understand. Because what Christ has been teaching them for the last three and a half years was starting to fall in place. You see the reaction of Peter and John. How about the experience of Mary Magdalene here? Now, evidently, you know, Mary Magdalene had come back to the tomb, kind of probably arriving just as Peter and John were leaving um, here. You can see that some of the wording there. Obviously, still early, and she's beside the tomb weeping, not because the Lord's you know, just been dead, but his body's gone, been stolen, you know. You know, she turns back, she sees someone standing close, and he asked her to know why she's crying. You know, through her tear-filled eyes, knowing everything, assuming that it's the gardener, you know, she asks him. And she blurts out an anxious request for the gardener you know, to tell her you know, where the body's been taken to. And anybody else remember any other things about Mary Magdalene? Like what was kind of her background? This is the same Mary who is a demon-possessed woman. Probably similar to the situation in the book of Acts with Paul and Silas and Philippi with 
casting the devil out of the woman there, marched through the streets by men, made money off of her, probably. And a few years before, her mind had been so warped and twisted until she met the Savior. He had simply spoken her name as only he could speak it there. She'd never forgotten that day when her mind was made whole and the demons fled. And from that day on, she worshipped the Lord, but now she'd never hear that voice again. Or so she thought. Isn't it interesting? He said one word, didn't he? He said her name, Mary. Spoken as only one person could speak it. And that was enough. She believed it. What a moment that would have been, that realization. He's alive. And he lives. And our Lord is a living, risen Savior. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living. Whatever he's going to say. So we see now, falling at his feet, she seeks to worship him. That reaction is not wrong, nor was it wrong for her to touch him. But the Lord revealed to her that he wasn't to be. He needs to ascend to heaven, and she must learn to relate. This is a really interesting thought here. All of his disciples would have gone through this. Must learn to relate to him in a different, less tangible way. It's interesting. No, Christ's statement, touch me not. It's the idea of touch. Physical. Physical. The idea of touch is kind of like, you know, to fasten on to. Kind of almost to attach oneself to. Right? If you think about that, I'm touching something, I'm attaching myself to this. So when he says, touch me not, he's implying here not just like a momentary like freak, like touching, a new day at dawn with his resurrection. From that day on, from this day on, her communion with him would have to be through faith, through the Holy Spirit, not by sight and touch as it had been in those days. Even his disciples were the same way. And of course, that would be especially true after he ascended to heaven 40 days later. So continuing on here, this is another similar situation here to the revelation of the other disciples here. Again, other gospels kind of record all the events that kind of happened when Jesus appears to them, but he appeared to them that day as well, up in the upper room. But all the disciples, except Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. So what was, what was Thomas's reaction when they told him about it? So you've seen the Lord. Unless I what? See and touch. And touch. But eight days later, they were again, and Jesus came, and he was there. What did Jesus offer, offer him? Did he? Eight days later, he too saw and believed without the need to touch. That's an interesting thought. Think about that. That connection there with Mary and then Thomas here. It's not physical now. 
by faith. And what, what does Jesus say here? Verse 27, and verse 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were with him, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed, blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Jesus proclaims a blessing here to all those who believe in him by faith without the benefit of seeing him physically. Have you received that blessing? Have you? Really? Have you? Are you a partaker of that blessing that Jesus gave? That's why John wrote this book, the very next two verses. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's why John wrote this book. That reason right there. He's not here. He's written. Look at some of the questions here, real quick, and we'll, uh, we'll move on. On page 254 there in your book, answer a few of them here. So if you were in Joseph of Arimathea's shoes, would you have remained? Tough for sure. I think everybody has their own answer in their mind. It's just not escaping. But you think, if you think about what they just witnessed the day before, or well, same day, with everything that um, happened while he was on the cross, then written too, with him being as well educated as he is, and Proves what he believed. Taking some tests, though. It wasn't just a simple, oh yeah, I'm a Christian kind of thing. I can offer this today. Again, the next one is why or why not, but we'll, we'll kind of talk about that later. So, what was it about Mary's relationship with Jesus that made her cry when she didn't know where he was? Why would that bother? Why would that bother? To bring Mary back. He obviously meant so much because he had saved her out of the depths of her sin and her demon possession. She'd come to his grave and to care for his corpse out of gratitude you know, for what he'd done for her. So if you were one of the disciples, what might have been your reaction to her testimony of St. Jesus? Do one of the disciples, and you 
as long as he came back and heard that, we'll leave that about. Now you want to put yourself in their shoes kind of question. Probably not the most faith-filled answer, faith-filled response, probably, if it was me. Yeah. So do you think <coughs> Thomas was wrong to want to see the same evidence of his resurrection that the other disciples did see? When you think about that, they got to see physically. He didn't, and of course they're asking him. Believe well, he said, well, so is he wrong? We want to request the same type of thing. Because no, we kind of like like the bash on Thomas, you know, yeah. doubting Thomas, this and that. But uh, yeah, the, the others had seen him, but he had not. So they're they're just relaying what they saw. He wasn't there. So is he wrong? Request the same thing. The other disciples um, didn't believe when the ladies came back and told him. Yeah, they didn't believe. Yeah, the ladies told him. So going down a couple questions here just for time's sake. So why did John write the gospel? Why did John write this gospel? That we might believe. See it in verse 30 and 31 here in John 20. As many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that she might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, he might have life through his name. That's why he wrote it. It caused people to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. That's why. The next question, well, you just think about it for yourself, but what about this gospel is most convincing to you? That Jesus is the Christ. Think about that. And we'll talk about it at the time to sit here. But we've got one more lesson next week, and that actually finishes our, uh, our study here in the Gospel of John. We're talking about that next week. If you like fishing, make sure you're here next week because we're going to mm -hmm. learn some about first century fishing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for. Many, the many ways that you've blessed us. We thank you for 